Welcome back, everybody. My name is Freddie Fuller, and I'm the product specialist on the RBC European Equity team. And following the recent release of the IPCC's Climate Change Assessment Report, this episode we will be taking a look at how the stark warnings included in the report have implications for both countries and companies. And to discuss this, I am joined again by James Jameson. Morning, everyone. So the contents of this report, James, have garnered, unsurprisingly, a lot of attention uh, and has really served to affirm our belief that we remain well off the warming targets that underpin the Paris Agreement. And beyond this, um, were there any standout areas for you in the paper? Well, with the cost of failing so boldly officiated, I think the lens has been cast firmly back upon just the enormous financial requirement to make the necessary progress. Yeah. They're now estimating that the economic impact of climate change will reach 69 trillion US dollars this century, uh, with energy transition investment, therefore, uh, needing to rise to at least four trillion dollars a year. And given where these numbers suggest we need to be heading, it's it's interesting to look at what the longer term implications could be. Um, it's it's maybe a touch reductive, but one can look at the last few decades as a series of fronts, um, East versus West, developed versus emerging, um, and things like that. But, a, but an idea that seems to be gaining yeah. traction increasingly now is one of how climate change will open up new uh, fronts or become a new frontier at which different countries or, or regions will battle, for want of a better phrase. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. This is very much the new front. Just take the US and China, okay, two titans uh, who will vie for future green supremacy. Mm. Um, Supply chains are front and centre here. Just look at China's global domination uh, in rare earth metals production. These materials are are vital to electrification and to digitisation. Um, So China are commanding an extraordinarily powerful advantage, which the US are unsurprisingly eager to address. Meanwhile, on the climate diplomacy front, if the US can reconcile their tricky domestic politics, uh, they do still remain in pole position to influence other countries in how they enact decarbonisation, in turn facilitating deployment of American technology and knowledge in order to achieve this. But but inherent in this are uh, frictions which we're already uh, seeing emerge, uh, many of which are on a a political level. You've mentioned US and China, you know, the EU is a a leader in many aspects, Mm -hmm. um, including renewable energy, but it has to contend with the inherent issue of implementing this with the diverse requirements, uh, political and otherwise, of underlying governments and indeed societies within the bloc. Yeah, I mean, totally. In fact, Spain make for a perfect example of this as they've started calling on the EU to reformulate the electricity pricing mechanism that the bloc face uh, in order to accommodate some sort of a ceiling, a cap. Um, Their contention being a need to better balance affordability for the consumer uh, with the need to cover transition costs. Yes. And climate change is also shaking up national politics, isn't it? The German election later this month may culminate in a very new look coalition. Indeed. um, With polls pointing to a showing from the Greens that 
we really haven't seen before. And of course, these devastating summer floods there uh, have amplified the climate agenda for all parties involved. And, and what this is uh, shining a light on is, uh, is how it's feeding into the corporate sector in ways that may not have been so obvious to market participants in the not-too-distant past. Um, Some listeners will remember a a ruling back in May by a Dutch court uh, that could prove to be a watershed moment for companies as the court ruled that uh, Shell, Royal Dutch Shell, uh, needed to cut its greenhouse gas emissions by 45% by 2030 compared with 2019 levels which requires uh, significant and, and extremely complex strategic decisions uh, by the company's management team. Uh, I should note at this point that the company is appealing the decision, but the, the principle stands um, that, that, that the movements required to reach net zero are being actively pursued now by groups, courts, governments, and uh, and such like, and this is likely to impact corporates more and more. So, um, J- James, uh, you know, as an investor, how do you think this affects the way people should look at businesses? Clearly, these issues are inextricably linked with the macro factors already mentioned. But there's a dual aspect to this, Freddie. The first is how businesses should approach their own investment while looking to both regulatory requirements and future growth opportunities. While the second is how we as investors then allocate capital to these businesses and position accordingly. On the first point, corporates are actively investing in both existing and emerging technologies via research and development and M&A. Now, whether it's the organic or inorganic approach, management are faced every time with the difficult decisions of when to invest, how much to invest, and working out the probability of said initiative delivering the anticipated payback. Which I suppose suggests it is ever more important to remain abreast of uh, emerging and commercialised technologies in order to thoroughly analyse the company's capital allocation decisions and, as a result, their terminal value proposition today. Spot on. Corporates are now universally enacting strategies to this end, and we must position around them. Now, unfortunately for investors, an expressed idea doesn't necessarily culminate in assured results, does it? Uh, After all, uh, some companies who moved early on now have the first mover advantage, uh, while others who also moved ahead of the curve have not seen the same degree of accretion. And this challenge is really especially prevalent when technology and innovation is a core driver, such as the case with decarbonisation. Beyond the analysis uh, of an initiative actually working, there's also the complexity of the market to consider because participants reward the marginal, okay, and very often hyperbole, well in advance of operational execution. Yes. But declaring an intention is one thing, while the reality of delivering it is quite another. So investors need to consider this timing risk even more than normal because the decarbonisation theme is very long duration. And although we know that the opportunity is huge, it means that there will be even more volatility along the way. 
Um, perhaps you could just draw that out a little bit more uh, and clarify. It just seems it seems like quite a key point. What I'm trying to convey is the conundrum of when to be exposed because a prospect coming to fruition and a prospect being discounted are, are decoupled due to market behaviour, which makes the notion of investment horizon and investment approach absolutely paramount here. And this is something I anticipate becoming a bigger topic as the decarbonisation theme matures and something that investors in the space will need to better articulate uh, to their underlying investor base going forward. Interesting. Um, if, if we can take a, a step back again, um, there's also a clear need to scale investment in green and transition finance. Uh, and we have already mentioned some of the numbers uh, that needed to be involved. For investors and indeed corporates, this, this uh, will prove to be no mean feat. Um, across different regions and jurisdictions, what green means in investment terms varies wildly. Sure. Um, the EU has led the way so far with the EU taxonomy, which very much broke new ground when it was announced, uh, with a number of other countries uh, since following suit. Uh, the UK and Canada have both announced the creation of similar taxonomies founded on very uh, many aspects of the EU taxonomy. Uh, meanwhile, Japan has proposed one uh, far more focused on transition activities rather than pure uh, green plays in inverted commas. Right. And what is defined as green also differs between jurisdictions. Absolutely. Uh, renewables, especially solar and wind, you know, these are obvious. They're easy and they're accepted under the green banner. But other sources of power generation aren't so clear cut as take nuclear and gas. Mm. In China, uh, they're already deemed green, while in the EU, uh, many negotiations and delays have yet to deliver an answer as to whether they will be deemed eligible. And this is just the power generation source before digging in uh, to all the other nuanced areas that constitute taxonomy. Just bringing it back to the investor, a universal standard of what constitutes green activity is imperative to fostering green financing. Mm. But there will still be contention and disagreement within this among the various market participants. So whose way is better and that large grey area in between is going to make for a long-lasting discussion that's really yet to begin. So um, to conclude, uh, the IPCC report has been a timely reminder of how much further we all have to go to hit the targets set out uh, under the Paris Agreement. Do you do you think this is something that businesses are starting to fully appreciate, or do you think the penny is yet to drop for many of them? From my perspective, the penny has dropped. Companies are working hard to this end, uh, and investors are busy trying to work out the appropriate way to participate in this enormously complicated and dynamic opportunity set. Yeah. In light of these challenges, we continue to believe that the best way to attain exposure is typically via tried and tested businesses who have the long-term thinking, internal architecture and market position that enables them to allocate capital very fast and effectively to the relevant solutions 
and that will ultimately deliver meaningful, sustainable returns rather than just binary outcomes. Well, look, that's, that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much, James, uh, for joining us again. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Goodbye. This recording has been provided by RBC Global Asset Management, Inc. for informational purposes only and is not intended to be investment or financial advice. You should consult your own legal, accounting, tax, investment, or financial planning advisors before engaging in any transactions. RBC Global Asset Management is the Asset Management Division of Royal Bank of Canada, RBC, which includes RBC Global Asset Management, Inc., RBC Global Asset Management US Inc., RBC Global Asset Management UK Limited, RBC Global Asset Management Asia Limited, and Blue Bay Asset Management LLP, which are separate but affiliated subsidiaries of RBC.